Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone who's interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook, Advisors, Coaches, and Mentors, How They Can Help You Skyrocket Your Career, which provides best practices for hiring and working with different kinds of coaches and advisors. Make sure you download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod three, four, eight. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and I have been really looking forward to speaking with today's guests for a while now. I'm speaking with both the do and the be of do be associates. <laughs> they empower business leaders and owners to fully realize their visions for success. So the, the do part of Doobie is Tony Carnese. He's a consultant, a business improvement specialist, and a CFO to go. He actually built his career as a CPA, so he knows all this number stuff, um, and a profitability consultant, and he's a mastermind facilitator. The B part of Doobie is Brian Gorman. He's an executive and transformational change coach who has spent his career in change management and transformational coaching, and he is also a mastermind facilitator. They co-host a podcast called It's Do Be Time, and they publish a LinkedIn newsletter called Enlightened Management. So uh, lots of good stuff that we'll be talking about today. Welcome to the show, Tony and Brian. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to the rest of our conversation. But before we jump into that, I'd love it if you could introduce yourselves to our listeners. Since I started with Tony, why don't we start there? Tony, could you tell them a little bit more about yourself? Absolutely. And I think Brian, as we segue into one another, we should mention also how we what brought us together. But I'll start off with me. I am a recovering CPA. I say that because when I look at a set of numbers, I get sucked into it because I really love to see numbers improve. My inspiration to go into consulting was from my CPA experience visiting different clients and preparing their financial statements. One day I came back from a client who for three years, their, their margins had been shrinking. And I asked the partner, I said, why don't we help them during the, during the non-busy season? He looked at me, he said, Tony, that's not what we do. Just go to your next engagement, please. So that was the start of my journey into consulting. I started out as a consultant and I introduced clients to profitability consulting. My first clients thought I was full of baloney. But then when I raised his gross profit margins from 28% to 38%, he loves me. Down the line, as I was working with clients like him, I met some managers and some owners who didn't want to change no matter what they said they knew they should do. And that's what inspired me to seek. I first thought about a therapist. And I said, nah, I don't want to work with a therapist. Then I met a bunch of coaches and I said, I don't want to work with these people. Then I met Brian Gorman at a Syracuse alumni event. We're both, we are both orange. We both bleed orange. I think me a little bit more than he. And when he started talking, I think I said to myself, I think I found a coach that I would like to work with. Brian, take it from there, please. So I am Brian Gorman, and I am a transformation coach. Uh, change at the social organizational and personal levels has been a part of my life uh, ever since I was a freshman in college. Uh, for many years, um, I, I worked in different industries, but always around making change happen. In 1988, I was a consultant at KPMG, 
when they formed an alliance with Daryl Connor, who is recognized as one of the founders of the change management profession. Uh, training with Daryl, I learned that there was a science and a profession behind what I had been doing, and I continued working in organizational change um, for many years after that. The truth is, though, organizations don't change, people change. And so I brought all of that change management training into my coaching um, and now work with t Tony, with business owners and business leaders who are struggling to achieve their vision. They have not just settled for where things are. They're ready to take it to the next level. Well, that resonates so strongly. Uh, you know, I think of how many times, um, and I really heard this from both of you, you can see what needs to happen or you, you see where you need to go or you want to go and don't always know the steps that it's going to take to get there. And whether you're looking at uh, a flat or shrinking profit three years in a row or whether you're looking at a big change you're, you need to make and you don't know how your organization is going to absorb that, that's that's a core kind of element, a core challenge of leadership. And yet a lot of leaders really haven't been trained. They don't know how to handle these big situations. So I, I definitely see why why it is that you guys are working together. Uh, in our prior conversation, as we were kind of planning to talk today, something that we really ended up focusing on is how you guys help leaders adjust to the shifting demands of the workforce. And I don't want to just focus this on what's happened since um, COVID has changed the world, because we've been seeing changing demands in the workforce, and you guys have been working together for longer than that. So what are some of those big changes that you guys are seeing? Yeah, let me paint sort of the big picture, and then Tony can flesh out a, a lot of the uh, details, but very critical details. Um, we saw a number of changes unfolding over many years. Mm -hmm. um, and actually in 2019, Tony and I trademarked uh, four-day work week because we saw a drive in organizations to become more effective, to give their employees a greater um, balance, if you will, between their work life and, and their uh, personal lives. COVID really acted as a catalyst to accelerate mm -hmm. uh, a number of these changes that, that uh, Tony and I will go into. But as a big picture, um, we really see that the future of work is being reshaped in a way that it has not been since the start of the Industrial Revolution. Tony, do you want to dive into some of the, the shifts that we're seeing? Well, one of the one that I would like to bring to light was mm -hmm. actually echoed by the great consultant Peter Drucker 20 years ago when he was in his mid to late 90s. So for those folks listening out there who don't think they can change, think again. He said, and this is really a good part of what we talk about, 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe even the 80s, the employees served the system. But with the advent of the knowledge worker in 2003 or, or, or thereabouts, Peter said, now the system must serve the employee. And talk about seeing the future. 
especially now, post-COVID, after things have been accelerated, that whole mindset. The system needs to serve the employees. The, empl the, 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 the employees, based on what we've seen the last couple of years, are more in the driver's seat than ever before. Leaders now have to use that dirty word, pivot, which was <laughs> used extensively during, during the, the beginning of the, uh, of, the, of the pandemic. But they have to change. And for some leaders, that's a whole lot easier than others. And that's what inspired Brian to start writing the Enlightened Management Newsletter. There are traditional managers who are stuck doing the same old thing. There are enlightened managers who are willing to recognize there's other ways to measure your employees' output than seeing them actually sitting at their desk. Absolutely. Um I, I love that overall observation, like you said, incredibly prescient, um, the idea of systems serving the employee. And I guess I want to spend a little bit more time um, honing in on what are the specific ways that you guys are seeing and hearing from your clients that, that employees demand or employees expect systems to support them that maybe organizations haven't traditionally provided. And why don't we start with Tony here? Well, another dirty word I'd like to bring up is culture. It, it, it is often seen in just about anything that we see written on the internet today. But what does that truly mean? And Brian and I are working with a client now. And the employees, we're working with the management team as well as the owner. And the management team has asked for more help and from their employees. The CEO the mad scientist with all the great ideas throws it all down to the, those folks in charge of operations and the folks in operations, especially the managers are overwhelmed mm -hmm. and they're wonderful taskmasters. I think they would really, you know, they've been trained as traditional managers and now they're learning that, well, we've got to create a culture and I'm sorry to use that word where our people self-manage themselves more so we can do more. So how do you teach somebody to self-manage? There's so much that comes into, into that. You know, and Brian and I talk about the balance between, between empathy and accountability. And most people who are very good at managing people from an accountable standpoint, accountability standpoint lack empathy. Mm -hmm. And those who have a lot of empathy, they lack accountability and they're, they're too nice. Where is that balance and bringing that together so your employees now self-manage and contribute without having you to ask them directly to contribute in ways that are outside what they normally do? Brian, do you want to take, take that a little further? Absolutely. I think another big uh, shift that we're seeing is employees are willing to say no, mm -hmm. uh, especially those employees who are skilled or in uh, in-demand professions. Um, if they're not finding what they want with their employer, um, and if their employer is not ready to listen to them, that's the driving force behind what's often known as the great resignation. Mm -hmm. Part of what's important for us is understanding what those driving forces are, because those business owners who do understand those business owners who do listen to their employees are able to leverage those very same factors 
to build and grow their uh, businesses with the best talent on the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a significant competitive advantage. And, you know, we see that in a lot of different ways from even, um, you know, when during social justice movements and you see uh, employees, sometimes this is a big group, sometimes key individuals who might leave an organization that f- they feel doesn't necessarily support their values. Or as you said, maybe they're they're looking for um, an organization that's going to allow a different sort of a work structure or um, have different expectations in terms of responsibility. And this is definitely more of an employee's market <laughs> when it comes to um, what what people can expect. And, and they really are empowered to leave if they if they feel that that's the best choice. Definitely different than than some other times in recent memory. Um, one thing that that I really thought was interesting there, um, and I'm going to start with Tony since since we started here, but that idea of leaders who historically were given a very clear deliverable and expected to break that down into pretty detailed instructions and kind of sitting on top of <laughs> their teams to make sure they they executed on that, and the idea that instead of that level of being a taskmaster, they're now expected, and it's a requirement of, of their position to be able to have people self-manage, have people um, take on more responsibility, take on maybe coming up with solutions for themselves. How, what would you do if you had a leader who, who was tasked with that and really just had no idea where to start? What are some of the ways that, that leaders can think about beginning that journey, that change? I think the first place I would go is they really need to start. You know, I was talking to a manager just the other day and he used the word reprimand. Mm-hmm. And I said, why don't you start it out instead as a conversation and ask questions? And one of the most important things I think leaders feel that they need to have all the answers. Mm. And that first perception they need to burst, pop the bubble on is, I don't have all the answers. My employees, my people may have all the answers. And number one is asking questions. Asking questions of your employees, what they need and what, what it is. Because, you know, you mentioned, you know, the details. Details are still so important as far as setting people up to succeed. Mm-hmm. And once you've thoroughly set them up to succeed, then you let them go, let them be accountable to you. But then you have to, as a leader, it's about asking questions. And, you know, I started this year saying this and I, and I stopped, I guess, because I felt that people might be offended, but ask a question, shut up and listen. <laughs> and I think that is so important for every leader and manager to understand. I don't know all the answers. Let me ask. Absolutely. Another thing that, you know, and just on, on the other the other side of that, when mm-hmm. you have a meeting, you know, one of our, like for example, when you run a meeting and you're the leader, don't run the meeting. Mm-hmm. Delegate that. Let your people run the meeting. You listen and ask questions. It's a very different dynamic than what most managers walk into a meeting thinking their, expecta- their expectation is. Absolutely. And that really naturally kind of flows into what I know you focus on, Brian, which is the B, right? And it's 
if I'm a manager, am I being the person who has all the answers? Am I being the the one source of truth and authority and reprimands and, and all of that? Or can I be something else? And is, is there a vision that you would recommend that leaders think of, or, or maybe vision isn't the right word, but, but what's the context that leaders might think of in terms of the, the kind of enlightened manager they could be? Well, Elizabeth, enlightened manager is exactly the, the <laughs> term I, I was going to give you. Um, traditional managers managed by position of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I was a drill sergeant in the Air Force. I understand what it's like to be in a position of authority. Um, but as Tony said, I don't have all the answers. I don't know all of the skills that my team has. I don't know all of the passion for, for doing things that my team has. If I'm just telling them what to do, uh, I need to own what the results are by myself. If I can get my team to co-create the solution, to live into their passion as they're giving me, they're giving my business what we need, I have addressed issues of quality. I have addressed issues of engagement. I have addressed issues of employee turnover and employee loyalty. Um, so it, it, it's a whole different mindset. It's about asking those questions. It's about building and sustaining trust between the manager and the people who work for them. Um, it's, it's about seeing the world in a very different light. That, that's a really powerful concept. And something I was thinking as you were talking, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about knowledge workers and, um, and, and I know that that's a context that we're often using when we discuss this topic, but I couldn't help but think of my dad who uh, retired a couple of years ago, but he uh, spent his career working in a factory and the level of dysfunction between the they basically said between salary and hourly, <laughs> it was really, um, those are the terms that they use, but between management and the people actually operating the, the machinery was profound. And, you know, you were talking about trust and asking questions and um, not, and conversations rather than reprimands. And it, as you said, these are things that this isn't new. This has been bubbling up. I mean, my dad was complaining about work the whole time I was growing up. And I'm, you know, I wasn't born at the beginning of COVID. <laughs> and so um, it's it's interesting to see that a lot of these issues, I, I wonder if it's the, the level of empowerment that employees are feeling that's creating space for these to become um, actual requirements as opposed to just things people you know, complain about when they're not at work. Elizabeth, if I can give you two quick examples around that. Mm -hmm. uh, currently working with a very large food uh, business, they are now bringing career counselors into their factories. Mm -hmm. um, and basically saying, 
people no longer graduate from high school or trade school and come into our factories in order to plan on retiring here. Mm -hmm. uh, working with another uh, leadership team of a 10,000 plus blue collar uh, division of a Fortune 300 company, uh, looking to change their culture. And uh, in one of the workshops that we were uh, having, one of the top 18 leaders said, look, do you think there is anybody down on the front line who is looking up at us and saying 20 years from now, if I work my tail off, I'll be able to work seven days a week just like those guys are? <laughs> We have to change our way of being if we plan on changing the way others in this organization are. That's that's huge. I, I do think what's interesting that, that I'm hearing from you there, you know, we we've taken what were the challenges and the problems and the things people hated about a lot of blue collar jobs and we've we've translated them into different problems and challenges in the more white collar jobs and neither of those is the ideal and so i can easily see in in some organizations that have you know i'll use the word again have have, have really problematic cultures it might seem like people are in an ivory tower and they don't have any problems but uh, a manager of you know a factory or or a facility who has some interaction with more executive leadership and management is likely going to see some of those really unhealthy behaviors you know um, never able to really go on vacation and not respond to every email that comes um, working 24 7 and i can see how you'd think there's there's no possibility that I could be happy. I'm either going to be really unhappy, you know, exhausting myself physically and feeling condescended to, or I have to kind of sacrifice my my family, my hobbies, my my interests just to fully dedicate to work. So that's a really prescient observation in terms of um, you have to fix both. You can't really just necessarily fix one. This also brings me to think of a client that I worked with. This was a few years ago now where we were analyzing a team and discovered they had a sense of disempowerment that they felt because of the structure of the organization, because of how their goals weren't tied to things that they felt they could impact. And and so they felt like they were kind of one step down. I would imagine, Tony, that that's something that you really focus on in your work when it comes to profitability consulting and when it comes to kind of accountability is helping people connect their behaviors to the results. Do you have any examples of where you've seen either major disconnections there or, or best practices that leaders can employ? Well, before I answer that, I just want to thank you for saying the word ivory tower. I hadn't heard that in a while. <laughs> and I remember, you know, you talked about your dad. My dad was a controller of a large or, uh, company in the 80s. And we'd walk through the shop and the people and I worked in the shop for, for a couple of summers. And I remember the, those folks referring to the executive team as the ivory tower. And there was definitely 
a disconnect there. So thank you for bringing that up. But now, now to answer your question, goals. You know, one of the most important things we encourage managers to do is when they when they create goals. You know, and um, Charles Bernard had this. The um, I think what did he call it? Um, oh, I can't think of the term he used for it, but we we agreed with it. I'll think of it in a second. Maybe I'll dig through the notes while I while while I talk. But goals. Who is setting the goals? You said, you know, when an employee has been given goals, what is their say in the matter? Mm-hmm. How do you own your goals if they're just given to you? Oh, you need to do this this quarter. See you later. Oh, thanks. Where's the input? You know, you mentioned how these this, these issues have always existed. You know, the ivory tower versus the folks down in the trenches. But the thing is, the younger generations now, the Gen Z, the millennials, they have forced it into a two-way conversation where it used to be a one-way conversation. And goals is a perfect place to start with a management team. Now, as far as examples of that, you know, one company in particular that Brian and I tried to help, you know, the, the owner gave his people goals, what to do. And if they didn't complete them, well, he was the one completing them. Oh, because an interesting plan. <laughs> he first he would he didn't give them a voice. They knew what they were supposed to do, and if they didn't do it, well, he did it. And imagine if he had, had sat down with them instead and said, "These are your responsibilities. What are your, these? Let's discuss your goals for the next ninety days with client management." client expectations. Um, And he didn't do that. He wouldn't implement. He did not want to change. That was the bottom line. Mm. He loved being a firefighter. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yes. We were going to buy him a helmet for Christmas, but then we said, screw it. You know, (laughs) that, that might've, might've helped, but I definitely see how often that happens. And it's interesting too because I think there are, there are almost there's more than two but there's really some distinct kinds of leaders. There are those in organizations who feel they have to be so close to everything that they could jump in and rescue. And you can't get above a certain size as an organization to have one person able to cover everybody's job. <laughs> I mean uh, I'll say, you know, criteria for success, we're quite a small organization and we still have, you know, areas of expertise that individuals have where, where the CEO couldn't just jump in and, and take things over. And so it's a, it's a limiting factor in terms of growth. But then you also see some organizations where leaders are a little too far on the other side, where they don't have any idea of what needs to be done. And I'm completely forgetting the name, but there's that that TV show that used to be on. I don't know if it's still on, where bosses would go in, undercover boss, I think it was, and you know, see how see how the employees worked. And if you've got a an enormous corporation, you, you don't have to know everything. But, you know, I'll, I'll go back to the example of my dad. I think of the the just disdain that you would hear from the factory workers who were firmly convinced that if anybody on the salary side came down and tried to do their jobs, they'd quit in two seconds. <laughs> and it, it, you can't have 
I think, too far on one pole or the other. And that idea of allowing people to set goals for themselves, but but a leader having a, a part of that, having a role in that process, kind of enables maybe a healthy middle ground. I don't know if you have, have a response to that. That's more of a thought than a question. <laughs> Absolutely agree with you 100%. There is a middle ground. Without asking the questions, without, and now Brian might get into this now, because I just thought of it. Where is the trust? Mm -hmm. Does your employee, do your people have the trust to speak to you and tell you what they think their goals should be comfortably, to tell you that you might be going in the wrong direction? Now we get into trust, which really goes into culture. And again, that you know, again, that culture word, but it's about the trust between your people and their willingness to communicate openly and honestly that really help find that middle ground, which will be the most successful. It's going to be perfect. Is it going to be perfect? No. But with constant communication, it will evolve into a best solution. Mm. If I can build on that, um, as, as Tony said, trust is really the foundation for every relationship. If I don't trust you, we're not going to have a very open communication. Mm-hmm. The, the next piece that's missing is that every relationship is built on expectations. More often than not, those expectations are implicit until they're not met. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I tell an employee that I need a report on Monday. I come in at nine o'clock Monday morning. It's not there. And I lose my temper because I said I need it Monday. Well, my employee said, says to me, when you said Monday, I thought as long as I got it to you by the end of the day, Uh it would be fine. We need to be explicit about those expectations, about the outcomes, um, and then trust the employee to live up to it. Uh, Tony said this before, you know, as managers, your responsibility is to set people up for success. And then they're going to succeed or they're going to fail on their own. Um, If you don't have that trust, if you're not explicit about expectations, um, if you don't have those open, honest, and sometimes tough conversations, it isn't going to work. Mm. That's that really resonates when you know we think of what it is that we focus on here at Criteria for Success, which is sales. And when you have a less functional team, if salespeople have a role in setting their goals, or if they're involved in the forecasting process, and they don't have that trust, that's when you see people providing numbers that they know are too low because they want to overperform and they don't want leadership to change the goals and, and adjust them. And, and they don't necessarily trust that they're going to get the support that you need. And so, uh, you know, as you said, that lack of trust often leads people to communicate inaccurate information, <laughs> which then compounds the problem. And then you see leadership saying, well, their forecasts are never right. And so we have to change them. And, and that becomes a, a really vicious cycle. So that, that's a profound observation. I don't know. Um, Tony, again, and, and 
I, I hope I'm not going too much to, you know, the, the do and the be sides of things, but just I would imagine, you know, in, in your work focusing on the numbers, that that level of confidence in the numbers that people are saying, um, you know, when it comes to forecasts, you know, hopefully if people are measuring actual things, <laughs> you've got you've got some confidence in the numbers. But in projections, um, trust seems like it's it's one of those implicit requirements that if organizations haven't necessarily looked at it, they could be making a lot of decisions based on numbers that, that don't make any sense. I don't know how I can add to that because a lot <laughs> of people do projections without thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, you know, Brian and I, Brian was just saying a story yesterday to somebody. We were sitting with a business owner. I bring in this person who claims to be this super salesperson. We're going to double sales over six months. Wow. We were on the, the second floor of his manufacturing facility. So I looked down at all the folks and down on the floor doing their thing. And I said, can all those people handle double sales? <laughs> and he said, no. All that. There's a projection that went out the window pretty quick. So it's, and again, if you're going to do a sales projection, you know, it's, it's that classic battle between the sales team and the production team. When things don't go wrong, they point fingers at one another. Mm-hmm. Well, what if they sat together, created projections? Then you know what? They won't blame one another as easily when things don't work out. Mm. But if the sales team comes up with their projections without checking with production, then they're not worth they're not worth the paper they're on or the computer screen that they that you see them on. Absolutely. And what you'll see happening a lot is then if sales really does start to ramp up and and they're exceeding the capability of production to match those expectations, some salespeople might be in a little silo and not thinking about it and go on selling more things that can't be delivered. But a lot of top performers will start to dial it back because they don't want to sell something that they're not confident can be delivered. And you'll see either people leave trying to go to an organization that they feel has the capacity to deliver on what they sell, or they just throttle back so much without necessarily even talking about it that sales go down much more than than they would need to to match up with um, with productivity. So um, that that's definitely just communication breakdown after communication breakdown really contributing to that sort of a problem. Definitely. Um, when it comes to the the specific questions and concerns that you're getting from leaders, I know we've honed in on a, a couple so far, um, but I didn't want to. Um, I didn't want to assume that there's nothing else. Are there any other core things that we haven't come up, that we haven't discussed so far today that you're hearing from leaders or you're hearing from employees um, when it comes to the changing expectations of the workforce? Brian, do you think now is a good time to talk a little about what the four-day work week means to us? Absolutely. Go for it, Tony. All right. Elizabeth, as I'm sure you're well aware, the four-day work week campaign is across the globe. Mm-hmm. But Brian and I have been very clear from the beginning. Four-day work week, because I've, I've walked into networking situations where I mentioned a four-day work week and they wanted to throw me out of the room. <laughs> I mentioned it to different organizations, especially a couple of um, big payroll PEO companies saying, oh, no, our clients don't want to hear that stuff. 
But the bottom line is, if you want to keep your best people now, you have to provide some kind of flexibility. And the best place, again, goes back to those questions. You may ask your staff, your team, your people, would you guys like a four-day work week? They may come back and say yes. Others may say, you know, I'd rather do is I'd rather take my kids to school in the morning, come in at 10, mm-hmm. take them up at 4 o'clock, and I'd rather still work the five days. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's that flexibility that employees want, that people want to have in the workplace so they can get more out of their personal lives. And now instead of a balance between the two, they flow interchangeably into one good lifestyle. Mm. That's, that's a really powerful concept because I think a lot of people, if they heard from leadership, um, again, and this is maybe in an environment where you didn't have good communication and trust, if they heard, do you want to move to a four-day work week, what they might interpret that as is, do you want me to expect you to do the same amount of work in four days that you're currently doing in five? And <laughs> that could be, you know, no, I, I want to be able to breathe sometimes. Um, or that could be, you know, I've seen in so many organizations, they have unlimited time off and yet nobody takes it because mm-hmm. they don't feel that things could get done and they would be judged or, or punished for it. And so you can say four day week, week, work week, you can say unlimited vacation but if you if you don't build in the systems and the processes to support all the way back to the very beginning, right? The systems serving the employee, it's it's just words. Elizabeth, um, for us, the four day work week is about improving productivity so that mm-hmm. you are getting the same results or even better results mm-hmm. uh, in four days, and that's not four ten hour days. It's not compressing time. But it's it's taking this the non-essential out of the workday. It's it's taking the time wasters out of the workday. It's you know, don't come into my cubicle and sit and talk to me for three hours <laughs> and, and then you know expect me to work until seven or eight o'clock at night. Um it's it's again changing the mindset, changing the behaviors so that when people are at work, they're focused at work. It's, it's about eliminating the non-essential meetings. It's about eliminating attendance at meetings where you're not needed. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really about getting the work done in less time. So as Tony said, you have more time for the other parts of your life. Mm. I just, if I may, I just want to mm-hmm. just... Elizabeth, you use the word, you're going to do the same amount of work in four days. And Brian, you use the work, but it's not work. We want you to have the same or better results mm. yeah. in less time. And you're going to, but the work is going to change. That That's really critical. And, and that's what I was hearing. Thank you for that clarification, both of you. Because if, if I think through a process that requires 17 distinct steps and they must be done a certain way because that's the way they've always been done and I have to, you know, check each box, I might not see a way to do that in fewer hours or a shorter amount of time. Uh, and and but, so oh, go ahead. We're, we're back to what Tony said early on. My question as your manager, Elizabeth, is you know where you have to end up at mm-hmm. the end of, of this process. How can you do it more effectively? 
and now I'm going to listen to you. (laughs) It's such a powerful thing because I'll say, you know, I've been in my um, position for 14 and a half years at this point, and there are tasks that I did when I was starting that I've now handed off to people who've handed it off to other people over the years. And if I expected people to do things the way I did them, that would be just silly. I mean, they, they've come up with, I mean, first of all, tools and, and systems and you know processes have improved. And so there's technology that can automate a lot of things that we used to do. Um, but there's also just, you know, different people have different perspectives. They have ways of doing things that, that can be more efficient. And there's, kind of a it's, it's almost too cocky as a leader to assume that you know the best way to do something you might know where something needs to go but as you said really just letting people come up with how to get there based on their own expertise rather than based on what you know you know from 20 years ago which might not be the same hopefully it's not the same <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm looking at the clock and realize we need to start to wind down. So a question I, I love to ask our guests who are speaking to as many people as you are and really kind of having important conversations is what are the trends that you're looking at in the future? Maybe things that you're just seeing glimpses of right now, but will likely become more important in the coming years. Well, besides what we've discussed already, I think it's really getting into the details of how managers can work better from a remote perspective. Mm-hmm. Definitely somewhere where an enlightened manager could be much more effective than a traditional manager. You know, as we've seen a couple of things come through, come through the works the last couple of years. Oh, you can now track how many keystrokes your employees are doing at home. Well, if you focus on the results, you really don't have to do that. And I think it's managers learning how to be results oriented in a much more creative way, much more, a more creative way to, to measure. You know, I'm going to bring up Charles Bernard's, what he called management by objective. Mm-hmm. It was something that really resonated with us when Charles was on our podcast. And that's exactly what we talk about. If you're the new manager if you're going to manage people today, you need to be much more results oriented and be much more creative in the way you measure them, measure what's being done and create an accountability structure that is not overwhelmingly control oriented. That's such a great point. I think one unfortunate side effect of how quickly um, COVID caused these changes is in one way, I think it, it, it probably helps leaders because they're forced to change. <laughs> and um, you can you can try to have people, you know, step by step by step make changes. But sometimes it, it really does take a, a completely different situation to, to force a change to make things happen. But that likely resulted in a lot of leaders and a lot of managers just quickly coming up with, okay, I'm going to take the things I used to do and just do them remotely. And these things I can't do anymore, so I'm not going to do them at all. And these things I'm going to do differently and boom, we're done. And it sounds like what you're really talking about is coming up with better solutions um, and and accomplishing some of the same goals as a leader that you might have had, but in different ways and really leveraging the benefits of remote work, not just looking at it as an obstacle. And that's that's really powerful. Um, anything else that you guys are that you guys are keeping your eye on? 
your eyes, I suppose, four of them between the two of you. <laughs> I, I actually want to reference Elizabeth, um, a, a book that I, I recently read and was fortunate enough to have a conversation with the author on. It's called The Heart of Transformation. And um, Michael Leckie talks about what he calls the human capabilities that drive transformation. Mm -hmm. I think I think these are essential for any leader who is looking to take their business successfully forward um, coming out of the pandemic. Um, the six principles he talks about are exploring before executing. Again, we don't have all the answers. Um, learning before knowing. Changing before protecting. It's time for businesses to evolve and not defend the way they've been doing it for the last X years. Pathfinding before path following. Mm. Innovating before replicating. And humanizing before organizing. Well, I will definitely be be getting that book and reading it. That sounds wonderful. And you kind of led us into the, the final question that I have for you. Well, the second to final question that I have for you is, are there any other resources that you would recommend for our listeners other than The Heart of Transformation? So I'll, I'll add some and, and then turn it over to Tony. Perfect. Uh, there are three from Greg McEwen, uh, the Greg McEwen podcast. Greg's the author of Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, um, which is, again, really how do we take the unnecessary out of the system? And he's also the author, author of Effortless, which is how do we do that effortlessly? Um, there's a wonderful book called Influencer, which is about how do you use those people who are in positions of influence, but not necessarily um, of title in your organization? How do you use them to really move significant changes in your organization forward? Um, and then a book I just read and I'm going to be talking with the author um, in the next few weeks about is Why I Find You Irritating. <laughs> And it's a, a brilliant analysis of the intergenerational conflicts that arise in the workplace and how to address those so that, again, they don't become conflict, but they become collaboration. Oh, that sounds that sounds wonderful. And I love the title. <laughs> All right, Tony, what about you? I have two uh you know, one thing that's been prevalent for, for God knows how long I've been working is time management. And Brian and I don't believe, neither of us believe that you can manage your time, that you can manage your priorities. Mm -hmm. One thing written by Gary Keller and Jay Papasan was one book about prioritization that I absolutely love. It focuses on what is most important reminds you that is where you should be focusing your day. And I am a big fan of Michael Gerber and the Entrepreneurial Myth Series, the E-Myth mm -hmm. Series. The E-Myth Manager is a wonderful book where he talks about if the manager's vision is not in line with who they're working for and the organization they're working for, 
why are you there? Um, he, that, you know, the E-Myth Revisited is, is a great introduction book, but the E-Myth Manager, I love that book for the picture, the, the, the picture he draws about what is your vision and is, in line, is it in line with your organization's vision? Well, that, that t- I need to reread that. It has been much too long. And um, I cannot, cannot emphasize enough how much that series really impacted me in my career and how I think about leadership. So thank you for that. All right. So, Elizabeth, oh, go ahead. If, if I can just jump in real quick to um, restate what was uh, said at the beginning. Enlightened Management newsletter on LinkedIn. Um, it's anywhere from a one to four minute read each week, and it's about different aspects of being that enlightened management, uh, enlightened manager. It's Doobie Time podcast. It's available on the Doobie Associates website, uh, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Blueberry, number of podcasting platforms. And again, we tackle all of these uh, with leaders who have made it work, who have found the solutions, um, and then. Uh, we are in the process of forming masterminds for business owners who are looking to take on and succeed with these challenges. Perfect. Well, thank you for um, answering the last question. So I didn't even have to ask it. (laughs) I really, really enjoyed speaking with you guys today. I feel like we could probably end up with a four hour podcast if we don't wind it down. So thank you so much for your time. I've, I've really appreciated it. And I know our listeners will as well. Thank you, Elizabeth. And just just one more plug, www.do-beassociates.com is our website. And in closing, I just want to, we have to close with this, Elizabeth, so please forgive me. When times get tough in business, it's doobie time. <laughs> Thank you, Elizabeth. All right. Thank you guys so, so much. Um, Should have still asked that question. All right. For listeners who want to learn more, who want to see all of those links so you don't have to write them down, you can check out the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod three, four, eight. And if you would like to help the show grow, one of the best ways is to share it with a friend. That's the best way for people to learn about and discover it. And if you haven't subscribed, do that that on whatever platform it is that you're listening to us today. We love your feedback. You can leave it in Apple Podcasts or your player of choice. And you can email us if you've got direct feedback, if you've got questions, guest or topic suggestions, podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook and the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com slash insights. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ryland Sylvester. Happy selling.